Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Good morning. I invite you this morning to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1, tucked away there in your Old Testament between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel. As we embark on this brief series together through the book of Ruth, Ruth, chapter 1, is where we're going to be this morning. God moves in a mysterious way. So writes the 18th century poet and hymn writer William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. If I were to describe the book of Ruth in a single statement, it would perhaps be best summarized here in the title of William Cooper's poem, God moves in a mysterious way. In fact, it might even be better described with that one line there in the fourth stanza where Cooper says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In essence, this is what the book of Ruth is really all about. The book of Ruth is about the hidden providence of God. It's about the unseen providence of God, even in the most dark and the most difficult circumstances of life. John Piper entitled his book on Ruth, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. Sinclair Ferguson, he says of the book of Ruth that this book shows us in miniature form how wise God's sovereign purposes really are. We are not, he says, able to detect with perfect clarity the hand of God in the circumstances of our lives, far less see where he is heading with them. And so, he says, we must learn to trust him on the basis of his promises to us. And really, church, that's what the book of Ruth is all about. It's about God's mysterious divine providence, that God is working Despite all appearances to the contrary, he is working in the darkest, hardest, most mundane, most ordinary details and circumstances of our lives. And while the book of Ruth, it advances the overall storyline of the Bible, as we'll see this morning, really, it's all just very ordinary. These are just ordinary details in ordinary situations, in ordinary lives. I mean, it's just so 
ordinary. There's no miracles in Ruth. There's no audible voices from God in this book. This is not Exodus. No, no. It's just normal, mundane, everyday life. However, that doesn't mean that God isn't working. We must not assume that the lack of miracles means somehow that God is inactive or that God is absent. No, no. He is there. He is present. He is working. He is accomplishing. He is moving. He is acting just as he is in our own lives as well. And so brothers and sisters, listen, I I cannot think of a more timely book for us to consider together right now than the book of Ruth. A a more timely and necessary word that addresses the particular situation in which we are facing right now than the book of Ruth does. Because, listen, no doubt there are many of us perhaps who have, in the midst of this current crisis in which we find ourselves, in the midst of this global pandemic, we have asked ourselves the question, what is God up to? What is he doing? Why is all of this happening? Lord, what are your purposes in all of this? And the reality is, listen, the reality is, is that God is doing 10,000 different things even when he seems to be absent. Even when he seems to be silent. And so, beloved, this is why we need the book of Ruth. Because Ruth shows us that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That behind every difficult, bitter providence, behind every dark circumstance of our lives, God is working and acting and accomplishing his good and perfect will. He is working all things, Ephesians says, according to the counsel of his will, even when we can't see it. Ruth chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read just through verse 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. It's amazing to me that the majority of the Bible, I think the statistic is something like 77%, the majority of the Bible comes to us in the form of narratives, stories. God has seen fit to speak. He's seen fit to reveal himself to us in the form of narrative stories. Now, why, you might ask, Well, I think that one reason is because stories engage us, don't they? Stories teach us something. The book of Ruth is a short story. It's only four chapters in length, 84 verses to be exact. It's one of only two books in 
the Bible to be named after a woman, and it's the only one to be named after a non-Jew, and yet it has been described by some as one of the most beautiful stories ever written. In fact, the ESV Study Bible, commenting on the book of Ruth, says that, quote, in terms of compact storytelling, Ruth is a masterpiece of a narrative. It is densely packed, yet the charm of the book is evident even to the most unsophisticated reader. Ruth is a great story, and we love stories, don't we? We're made for stories. We're compelled by stories. Stories thrill us. They, they have a way of affecting us and, and engaging us and drawing us in and stimulating our minds and imaginations, don't they? And the best stories, the greatest stories, they have a twist at the end, don't they? A surprise ending. And the same, it could be said for the book of Ruth. It has all the elements, all the parts of a great story. It's compelling. It's engaging. It contains development, character development. It contains romance and, and, and redemption. It has a, a plot line that, that draws you in. There's, there's conflict and resolution and, and even a surprise twist at the end, as we'll see. And so then, how is Ruth such a compelling story? Well, there are several reasons, I think, that make it so compelling, so engaging, and therefore loved by so many. One reason it's so compelling, so engaging, is because it's a love story. People can't seem to get enough of love stories, can they? I mean, give me tanks and guns and explosions, but, but many people, they love love stories, right? But the book of Ruth, it's, it's about a love story between two unlikely individuals, and Israelite gentleman named Boaz and a Moabite widow named Ruth. And so Ruth, she stands, this book stands as one of the greatest love stories ever written. I mean, Jane Austen's got nothing on the book of Ruth. It's a heartwarming story of love triumphing over adversity. And so perhaps maybe that's why people love this book so much. A second reason, though, is because many of us can identify, I think, with the characters in this story, can't we? Take, for example, Naomi, how many of you can identify with this woman who has been battered by life's seemingly relentless storms? Her pain, her loss, her suffering. I mean, who this morning in the midst of your own suffering and trials hasn't said at times or, or even maybe thought to yourself, verse 21, the Lord is against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And so the book of Ruth, really, it's, it's telling the story of all of us, isn't it? That we can all identify with these characters because it, it just transcends time and, and culture to show us the hardships of living in a fallen world. And maybe that's why people love it so much. A third reason, though, is because we do see here in this book good examples of biblical manhood and womanhood. Parents, if you want to teach your children what it looks like to be a godly man, if you want to teach your children what it looks like to be a godly woman, take them to the book of Ruth. Show them Boaz as a picture of a godly man, protecting and caring for women, who is noble and honest and righteous. Show them Boaz. Show them Ruth for a picture of a biblical woman who is fearless in her faith, trusting in the Lord. I mean, there, there are great lessons here, great characteristics here for us to learn from this book. And so, for all of these reasons, many people love this story. But listen, listen, if we stop there, 
we miss the very heart of this book. We miss the very purpose of this book. Why? Because the book of Ruth is ultimately meant to point us forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God is faithfully, providentially working to preserve the seed of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, who will ultimately come to crush the head of the serpent. That God is acting, even behind the scenes, to send his Messiah. Dean Ulrich In his book, From Famine to Fullness, The Gospel According to Ruth, he says this. He says, whatever else the book of Ruth might say, it has a theological message rooted in God's oversight of redemptive history that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth, he says, as part of the Old Testament, is rightly read as a contribution to the unfolding plan of God to redeem his fallen creation from sin. The human characters are, of course, involved in the story, But they are not what the book is foremost about. God, not Naomi, Ruth, or even Boaz, is the main character. And he works through the human characters to advance his sovereign and redemptive purposes. For this reason, he says, the message of the book of Ruth is not simply be like Ruth, be like Boaz. Ultimately, he writes, the book of Ruth is a profound account of God's providence in the lives of ordinary people in rather mundane circumstances to advance his glorious purpose of reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Oh my. That's what this book is about, friends. It's about Jesus. It points us forward to the coming of Christ. That even in the darkest of times, we see God is keeping his promise to send his Messiah. And that's what we're going to see together as we look together at this little book. We're going to see that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And beloved, it's meant to give us great hope. It's meant to give us great encouragement as we too oftentimes face in our own lives the frowning providences of God. Are there any frowning providences of God in your life? Because if God has acted in this way, we can be confident that he will do the same in our lives as well. God did not spare his own son. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The book of Ruth breaks down quite naturally into four acts, sort of like a play, divided up here into four chapters. So, We're going to consider Act 1 this morning in three different scenes. Scene 1, the sojourn, verses 1 to 5. Scene 2, the return, verses 6 to 18. Scene 3, the arrival, verses 19 to 22. And then we're going to draw out some application at the end. But before we turn to Act 1, I think it's important that we first establish from the very outset here how it is that we can know that the book of Ruth is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Because not everybody agrees with that statement. How is Ruth ultimately about Christ? Because it's very important that we guard ourselves from any kind of allegorical hermeneutic interpretation of the Bible. Meaning that when we study the Bible, specifically Old Testament books, we aren't looking for Jesus under every rock, as some people might 
say. We, we don't make everything in the book figurative or an allegory or, or symbolizing something about Jesus, spiritualizing the text, you might say. Because there's a huge difference between an allegorical interpretation and a Christ-centered interpretation. What's the difference? Well, a Christ-centered interpretation says and, and assumes that the Old Testament biblical authors wrote their books with an expectation of the coming Messiah, with the Messiah in view. So how can we know then that the book of Ruth is really ultimately about Jesus? Well, let me give you two reasons before we jump in. Reason number one is because Jesus says so. It's a pretty good reason, isn't it? It's because Jesus says Ruth is about him. Luke chapter 24, verse 26, says that Jesus, explaining the scripture to his disciples and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, and all the scriptures I think would include Ruth, the things concerning himself. And then in verse 44, he goes on to say that everything written about me, Jesus says, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, so three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, Psalms meaning the writings, that's where Ruth would be in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible, all of the law of the prophet, Moses, prophets, and, and Psalms must be fulfilled, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, explaining how it's about him. Or in John chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus believed the Old Testament was about him. So the first reason that we can believe and know that Ruth is about Jesus is because Jesus says it's about Jesus. The second reason we can know is because the author of Ruth says so as well. In other words, the author of the book of Ruth, whoever that may be, we, we don't know for sure who it is. Some Jewish tradition thinks it's Samuel, but probably not. We don't know who it is. We know about when it's written, but we don't know who it is. They wrote this book with the intention, the, the purpose of looking forward to the coming of Christ. Now, where do we see that? Because oftentimes people will go to Boaz and they'll just say, well, Boaz was sort of, of a type of, of Christ, right? This figure of Christ. But it's even more plain than that, folks. Now, in order to do this, though, to show you that it's plain here, we, we, we have to give away the ending of the story, okay? I don't know if you like knowing the ending before you began, my, my wife loves that. She always looks up the endings to movies before we, before we watch them. I hate that. No, so, so spoiler alert here. I'm going to give away the ending. So go to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Ruth, here's the spoiler, she marries Boaz, okay? And they have a son named Obed. And at the very end, in chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, the book ends with this genealogy. Thrilling drama. Isn't it? A genealogy. I'm sure you stay up late at night reading genealogies. Verse 18, look what it says. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Sam, Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And then it ends. Now what are we to make of this? Why does the author end this way? Well, here's why, beloved. It's because the author wants us to see God's providence 
in preserving the line of David. In fact, the very last word of this book is the word David. Ruth is a great-grandmother to King David. Now, why would the author want to show us that God is preserving the line of David? If you were to go back and look in Genesis 49, Jacob, he's blessing his 12 sons, and he gives one specific blessing to his son Judah. David's in the line of Judah. And he promises Judah in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, that a lion of a man is going to come from Judah's line, his lineage, one of his descendants. And he will be king, and the scepter will never depart from him. He's going to rule forever. According to Genesis 38, Judah had two sons, Perez and Zerah. But the emphasis falls on the older son, Perez, that from him will come this king, this lion of Judah. But then after that, after the promise made to Judah in Genesis 49, the, the, the family line, the lineage of Judah just sort of goes silent. Just sort of disappears from the pages of, of biblical history. And, and, and we're sort of left then as the readers to wonder, okay, what happened to this king who's coming? What happened to the line of Judah? Where did it go? In fact, the line of Judah, it seems, isn't picked up again until we get then to 1 Samuel chapter 16, where we're introduced to Jesse and his son David, who is in the line of Judah. So what is happening then during all of those years between the promise made to Judah in Genesis 49 and the arrival of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16? Well, I'll tell you what happened. The book of Ruth happened. In fact, notice in chapter 4 there of Ruth, verse 18, it begins with Judah's son, Perez, where the book of Genesis lift off. And then in verse 22, notice it ends with King David, where 1 Samuel resumes. Notice, perfectly filling in the gap of the line from Judah to Perez to David. And right there in the middle of this genealogy of King David is Obed, the son of Ruth and Boaz. So, in essence, the author of the book of Ruth is saying to us, God has kept his promise to Judah. He has providentially preserved the line of this coming king. And of course, we know the promise then made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David himself is promised by God that one of his sons would reign on the throne forever. Because then, there is only one other place in the Bible where Ruth is mentioned outside of this book. Do you know where it is? You know where it is? It's found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5 where we see her name mentioned where? In the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth is a mother of Jesus. The son of David. The lion of Judah. God is faithfully and providentially preserving the line of Jesus. That's what the book of Ruth is about. And so with that background in mind, let's jump in then to Act 1, Scene 1, The Sojourn. The Sojourn, verses 1 to 5. 
Verses 1 to 5, as the prologue of this story begins, we, we find here a very sad and dark scene, don't we? There's nothing happy about these verses. There's nothing that seems good about these verses. In fact, it, it just seems to be one frowning providence after another. And, and in fact, God himself seems to be absent, does he not? I mean, he's not even mentioned in these first five verses. He seems absent. And listen, listen, that's the way it often seems when life is dark, when life is difficult, right? God, where are you? Why, why are you absent? Verse 1 sets our story in history. Look there, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. So, these are the days following the death of Joshua. This period of about 400 years between Israel settling in the promised land. And yet, our story takes place preceding the monarchy in Israel. The days of Saul, the first king of Israel, so it's between that time, so this, this describes a period of time when the 12 tribes of Israel, they were governed by these local, regional judges. The book of Judges, that's the setting. Verse 1, it all happened in the days of the judges. And so these were very dark days for God's people, were they not? I mean, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you, you know this to be true, don't you? You know these are dark days. In fact, we aren't even left to wonder what these days of the judges were like, all we really need to do is simply turn back one page in our Bibles where the book of Judges ends, notice, with this bleak description there in Judges 21, verse 25, where we read that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, that really captures this time period, right? Really captures our even most post, our postmodern world today, does it not? They're doing what's right in their own eyes. There's religious apostasy, there's idolatry, moral decay, political upheaval and turmoil. I mean, this just sort of downward spiral nationally and, and spiritually. This is a very dark time. And yet, as we'll see, God is even at work in the worst of times. Verse 1, notice we're told also there's a famine in the land. A famine has reached Bethlehem. Which is quite ironic, seeing as the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. It's like going to Panera Bread and saying, we're all out of bread, right? There's no bread. But you can imagine this would be devastating for an agrarian culture. So there's economic disaster. There's no food. People are starving to death. And this famine, it, it should perhaps come as no Shock to us, no surprise to us. Because in the Old Testament, famines, typically they were a sign of God's judgment. And based upon the unfaithfulness of Israel, we see in the book of Judges, this is perhaps God's judgment upon his people. Because if you remember, under the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, remember that God had, he had promised blessing upon his people if they would simply obey the covenant that was given to Moses. He would bless them and he would bless them. However, if they disobeyed, if they broke the covenant, there would be only cursing. And, and one of those curses would be famine. And so this famine, listen, it wasn't simply the result of unusual weather patterns. It's not just a lack of rainfall. 
No, no. There is a theological reason here for this famine. This is God's righteous discipline on his people because of their disobedience. And it is meant by God to turn their hearts back to him. And that's the setting here. These are very dark times, friends, are they not? However, they will only get darker because in verses 1 and 2 then now, notice we meet Elimelech, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. Should be ringing in your ears that word Bethlehem. And we meet his wife Naomi and his two sons, notice Malon and Kilion. And rather than remaining in Israel, repenting, crying out to God for mercy during this famine, verse 1, Elimelech, notice he takes his family to Moab in search of food. In essence, he does what's right in his own eyes. So Elimelech, he should have remained there. He should have stayed in the promised land as he was commanded to, but, but he was happier, he was thought would be more comfortable in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. So in verse 1, he leaves God's place where God's people were to live under God's rule, and notice he journeys to the land of Moab. I mean, it just gets darker and darker here, folks. Moab. If you know, the Israelites and the Moabites, they, they, they weren't exactly on good terms, were they? If you remember the, the origins even just of the people of Moab, it goes all the way back to this incestuous relationship in Genesis chapter 19 between Lot and his daughter. I mean, this is an unclean people if there ever was one. In the book of Numbers, we see the Moabites were the same people who during Israel's wilderness wanderings, they hired Balaam, the prophet, remember? Balaam with the talking donkey. They hired Balaam to curse Israel. And then on top of all that, Moab even ruled over them in the book of Judges for 18 years. This is where they go. And it would appear at first that they had plans only to go just to find food. Because in verse 1, we see where it says that he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So maybe this was at first intended to be a short trip. However, notice in verse 2, they go into the country of Moab and remain there. In fact, verse 4, they live there for about 10 years. So notice that they go and they remain living in pagan Moab. And then in verse 3, tragedy strikes this family. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And so Naomi is now a widow in the land of Moab. There's still hope, right? Because she still has two sons. And so surely they, they can care for this woman and they can support their widowed mother. And so they themselves take wives. Notice verse 4, Orpah and Ruth. They're, they're not Israelites. They're Moabites. They're pagans. But hey, at least they can carry on the family name, right? But then in verse 5, 10 years later, the unthinkable happens. Verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is rock bottom, folks. Naomi finds herself blindsided 
by three deaths, grief-stricken, bewildered, destitute, no doubt believing herself to be cursed by God. Things couldn't get any darker for this woman, could they? And so notice that in just five brief verses, the, the, the lives of three women are completely decimated. Ruth has lost her husband. Orpah has lost her husband. And Naomi, she's first lost her husband, and now her two sons. I mean, one can just imagine the, the grief of this woman as she goes from funeral to funeral to funeral. I mean, it, just picture her here. The, the, the most vulnerable woman in society, right? A widowed woman, no spouse, no children, no money, no homeland, no welfare system, no prospects, no hope. Isn't life like that? In this reality, sometimes it could all collapse in five verses. It could all collapse today for you. My wife could tell you the story of a woman she knows who lost her three sons and her husband in a single day in a boating accident. Welcome to the book of Ruth. What a world, right? Can there possibly be any hope in this situation? That's what the narrator wants you to think right now. How can there be any hope for this woman in a world like this? Has God cursed her? Because chapter 1 is, is really all about the misery of this woman, Naomi. I mean, Naomi really is the main character of this book. I don't know why it's called Ruth. It really should probably be called Naomi. Probably because Ruth has the son. But this is a hopeless situation, Right? But beloved, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And despite all the darkness and the death and the tragedy and the suffering and the sin, God is working. He's acting. He's on the move. Scene two, the return. The return, verses six to 18. In verse six, notice there's a ray of hope. It's the first time God's name is mentioned in this book. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So in verse 6, Naomi gets word that the famine in Judah has ended. There's bread now in Bethlehem, the house of bread. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. So in verse 7, notice Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they set out together to return to Bethlehem. In fact, that, that word return there, turn back, it, it's used 12 times in chapter 1. That should clue you in. 12 times, this Hebrew word, shuv. And, and it's the, the Old Testament word, return, to turn. It, it's the Old Testament word for, for repentance. For, for conversion, Naomi has repented. She, she's heard of God's mercy upon his people back in Bethlehem, and she returns. She repents, and as we'll see, so will Ruth. This is an act of God's favor, his grace, his kindness toward his people, and she returns. And so she starts out on this journey to return with both of her daughters-in-law, at least at first she does, because then partway there, notice, notice Naomi has a change 
of heart. She, she simply cannot bring herself to allow Orpah and Ruth to go back with her to Bethlehem. And notice, she tells them to go home. And really, that's what verses 6 to 18 are all about. In fact, the author develops here, notice verses 6 to 18, around three different exchanges, three conversations here between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Notice exchange number one, verses 8 to 10. And then in verse 10, they say to Naomi, after she tells them to go back, no, we will return with you to your people. Then exchange number two, verses 11 to 14, and it ends in verse 14 with Orpah leaving and Ruth staying. And then exchange number three in verses 15 to 18, notice it ends in verse 18 with Naomi determining that Ruth's going to stay whether or not she wants her to and she says no more. In fact, the dialogue of these three women makes up most of chapter one. Women like to talk. <laughs> I've never experienced that in my own life. Okay, I've just heard that. Not, not the women in my life. It's all talking. It's all dialogue. And so somewhere on this journey, on the road from Moab, she tells them to go home. Now why? Why does she tell them to go back? Why does she tell them to return? Well, one reason is because she cares for these women. She loves them. And she recognizes that there's no future, there's no hope with her. I mean, they would be better off returning to the support of their own families in Moab because there's nothing for them in Judah. She knows, listen, she knows what awaits pagan Moabite women in Israel. There's no possibility of remarriage. There's no possibility of finding another husband and thus finding and having children. And, And she knows that that awaits them. This is an act, I think, of selflessness on Naomi's part because she is, it seems, encouraging the only family she has left to leave her for their own good and leave her completely alone. Just leave me to go back alone and die. I think that's one reason. But there's another reason. I I think there's a deeper reason here that she's asking them to leave. Here it is. Here's the primary reason, I think. In verse 13, look there. No, my daughter's. For it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me, for you, excuse me, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is a very broken and very bitter woman. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She believes that God is against her. In verse 8, she asks the Lord to deal kindly with them. But in verse 13, she believes God has turned against her. There's no kindness for her here. This is God's judgment upon her. This is God's curse of her. And so she says to these two daughters-in-law, get as far away from me as possible, ladies, because to be near me, to be close to me, is asking for trouble because God has cursed me. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Is God against her? Is God against her? Well, if you mean, did God bring the famine? Did God kill her husband and her two sons? Then yes, 
at least it seems like, it feels like he is against her. God is the one who has brought all of this upon her. But is he really against her? Was he against Joseph? Was he against Job? Is he against you, Christian? Even though at times it may seem as if he is against you, that he hates you, that he's mad at you, is God against me? And we discover here he's not against her. And he's not against you either, Christian. He's moving. He's working. He's acting. There is a smiling face behind this frowning providence. Because then, notice in verse 14, then they lifted up their voices, these three women, and wept again. I mean, you can just imagine this gut-wrenching scene on the road there. And and Orpah, notice, kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. She turns back. She walks off the pages of biblical history, never to be heard from again. Verse 14, notice Ruth clung to her. Verses 15 to 18, in this this final exchange here between Naomi and Ruth, we see this this beautiful picture here, it seems, notice of of Ruth's devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi, don't we? In fact, we, we come to the most memorable verses in the entire book of Ruth. Verse 15, and she, Naomi, said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, notice that, return after your sister-in-law, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. These are memorable verses, aren't they? Have you heard these verses before? Where have you oftentimes heard these verses before? Weddings, right? You heard these verses at a wedding? Maybe they were at your wedding. Why? Well, because these verses, they they seem to be verses about a strong personal commitment, a strong pledge, a strong promise here between these two women, right? Don't they? I mean, now granted, these are between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, not, not a husband and a wife, but they are, they are strong words of commitment and promise and devotion, aren't they? I mean, look there, verse 16. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I'm going to live. Where you die, I'm going to die. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. If anything but death should separate us. I mean, this... This is strong words of devotion, right? However, these words, they aren't primarily about Ruth's commitment to Naomi, but about her commitment to Naomi's God. Here's what I mean. They're not so much about her faithfulness to Naomi as they are about her faith in God. This beloved, is a profession of faith. This is a conversion. Ruth is converted. Your God is my God. Interestingly, verses 16 and 17, Ruth's response here, it has a a poetic structure to it. It's a chiastic structure. 
You're like, what is that? Okay. Well, simply to say that what Ruth says here forms a a series of couplets that, that begins in verse 16 and ends in verse 17, and it sort of works its way inward. Really, it frames what's most important that she says, the bullseye there of what she says in verse 16. Notice the end of verse 16. Here's the bullseye of it. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Friends, this is a profession of faith. This is saving faith. As one commentator says, this is arguably the clearest conversion statement in the Old Testament. In essence, what Ruth is saying here is she's saying, the reason I belong to you, Naomi, is because I belong to Yahweh. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. She, notice, is including herself here, this Moabite woman. She is including herself here in the people of God. And amazingly, it seems as though Ruth has counted the costs, hasn't she? I mean, notice her faith. She knows what Israel holds in store for her. This is an act of costly faith. Because, think about the cost here for Ruth, right? She is leaving her family, she's leaving her land, she's leaving her culture and everything she knows to be safe. And as far as she knows, she's gonna live and die as a a childless widow in a foreign land with a hopeless future, right? I mean, there appears to be no advantages for Ruth to go. And it's even more stunning, given Naomi's suffering that Ruth has just witnessed, and even her own suffering in losing her husband, that she has it seems, experienced at the hands of this God, the hands of Yahweh, and yet she declares in verse 16, your God is my God. Ruth seems to trust Yahweh despite these frowning providences. What's the only explanation for this? What's the only explanation for her faith? Friends, there's only one explanation for it. That God moves in a mysterious way. A sovereign God has moved upon this Moabite woman to bring her to faith. He's saving people. He's converting pagan sinners, even in what appears to be the deepest, darkest, most hopeless situations. Do you see the providence of God here in bringing Ruth to himself? Think about this. His providential grace here is just absolutely stunning. Think think about it. Think about what it took to bring Ruth to saving faith. Think about it in your own life. For Ruth, it was a famine. It took them leaving the promised land, going to Moab, pagan Moab, even in their sin, marrying these pagan Moabite women, and then three deaths. But in the kindness and mercy and grace of God, He was providentially all along working out his plan, saving and rescuing this Moabite woman, bringing her to himself. This is all the result of the unseen hand of God. Beloved, all of these events that that seem so dark and so hopeless, that they have led now, notice, to salvation and eternal life for Ruth. 
And we know this because not only of the profession of faith we see here in verse 16, but also because of how the story ends, don't we? What we saw at the end. It it led to eternal life for Ruth, and it will lead to eternal life for countless others, including every Christian who is listening this morning. Why? Why? Because this same Ruth would become now the mother to the Savior of the world. And it took very dark, very frowning providences orchestrated by God to bring about His good and wise and saving purposes. Is God at work in the worst of times? You bet He is. Here's proof. Beloved, in the darkest moments of your life, cling to the book of Ruth. Cling to the sovereign providence of God. Which brings us to scene three. The arrival. Verses 19 to 22. Verse 19. So the two of them went out, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned with Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Verse 19, notice Naomi and Ruth, they have finally arrived now in Bethlehem. And notice that the whole town is stirred up because of them. Because it's, I mean, it's been 10 years now, right? Naomi returns, but she returns this time without her husband, without her two sons, with this Moabite woman. And so I'm sure this was quite the scene, right? I mean, what happened to this family? And it appears they don't even recognize her because in verse 19, they ask, is this Naomi? This isn't the Naomi that we remember. Perhaps the effects of her suffering were even visible upon her face, taking a toll physically even on this woman. Verse 19, is this Naomi? In verses 20 and 21, notice, she's a different woman. In fact, her suffering, she has turned into a very bitter woman. In fact, she's so bitter, she's so hardened, it seems, in her suffering, that she demands a name change. Look there, verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi, it means pleasant. It means sweet. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me, sweetie pie. Here's my new name. Call me bitter. Mara, bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In verse 20, notice, 
Naomi demands a name change that reflects her perception of God and the attitude of her heart. She's bitter. She's bitter because she believes that God has been bitter toward her. She is accusing, it seems, God of treating her harshly, not kindly. He's been bitter towards me. She believes that God is sovereign. Oh yeah, he's, he's the Almighty, else should die. But she doesn't believe, it seems, that God is kind to her. He has not been kind to me. He's dealt bitterly with me. Again, Dean Ulrich writes, It is evident that Naomi's circumstances influenced her to develop a hardened understanding of divine sovereignty. For Naomi, her circumstances indicate that God is great, but he is not good. He does as he pleases, but his pleasure lacks empathy and kindness. With such distorted theology and a crushed spirit, she resigns herself to the harsh workings of a cruel deity. Friends, do you see Naomi's response here to be one of bitterness in her suffering? She believes God is against her. Based on her current circumstances, she mistakenly measures God's goodness and kindness toward her by notice, her level of perceived happiness, her level of whether or not her desires are being met or if life is going according to her own plans and notice that in the midst of her suffering, she has been blinded by her bitterness to the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God in her life. And isn't that so true of our own lives as well? Do we not often judge God's love and God's faithfulness towards us by the pleasantness of our circumstances? Has God been good to her? Has God been kind to her? Well, note back in verse 6. The Lord's kind provision in making sure that Naomi in the fields of Moab, hears that now there's food back in Bethlehem. That's God's provision. It's his kind providence. Verse 6, she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is one of only two places in Ruth where we see the Lord's direct action, the Lord's intervention. But notice in her bitterness, verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, is that accurate? That's not accurate, is it? I went away full, and the Lord's brought me back empty. How's it not accurate? Well, first, she didn't leave full, did she? There was no bread. She didn't leave full, or she would have never left. And second, she doesn't perceive the kindness of God. She doesn't perceive the kindness of God in providing food now in Bethlehem. And listen, she doesn't perceive the kindness of God in this woman that is standing next to her. That Ruth is going to be the conduit of blessing for her and for all the peoples of the earth. And in verse 22, notice, notice, they came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. God has brought her back at exactly the right moment, at exactly the right time. While she is complaining, the author here is drawing our attention to the sweet and gracious providence of God. 
Because not only is this going to mean now food for Naomi and for Ruth, but it will also be, listen, in these very same barley fields where Ruth will meet her future husband Boaz and then everything's going to change for Naomi. Everything's going to change for Ruth. Everything will change for the world, beloved. But right now she's blinded by her bitterness. She doesn't see clearly. She's blind to God's kindness toward her. So then let me just draw out some application. Two points. We'll be done. Number one, we must trust the sweet and bitter providence of God. We must trust the sweet and bitter providences of God. Again, I take that phrase, sweet and bitter providence, from Piper's book, which I highly recommend. And what I mean is that we need a theology that is big enough that sees that God sovereignly ordains and brings to pass in our lives both the good and the evil. We need a theology big enough to include both. But God ordains and brings to pass both good and evil in our lives. Now listen, I'm I'm not in any way suggesting that God is the author of evil. No, no. He's holy, he's perfect, he's sinless, he can tempt no one with evil. But if, if you don't have a theology that holds this divine mystery together that that God is somehow sovereign over both good and evil. Friend, I don't know how you make sense of the Bible. I don't know how you make sense of the world because the Bible says he's sovereign over both. Let me ask you, do you agree here with Naomi's theology? Do you agree with her theology? Yes, I mean, we can all agree that she's a bitter woman. And, and her suffering has made her hard, it's made her bitter. But did you notice her theology? Notice her theology, verse 20. The Almighty has done this. Verse 21. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity, or that word could be disaster or evil even, upon me. Do you agree with Naomi's theology? Now listen, while I don't agree with her Attitude. I don't agree with her misconception about the character of God, his kindness and goodness towards her, that he's against her. Her theology, for the most part, is right. Even though her bitterness and resentment bubbles to the surface here, she still believes that ultimately God is in control. That even... Her suffering and calamity has been ordained and brought into her life by a sovereign God. She still believes that God is in charge. Remember Job? He lost it all, didn't he? All his children, all his possessions, his health. And in Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job doesn't say... The Lord gave and the devil took away. Even though we know the discussion in chapter 1 between God and Satan. No, in verse 21, chapter 1, Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord took away. 
he attributes his affliction and suffering and misery to God. And then he worships the sovereign God who took it all away. Or in Job chapter 2, verse 10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job says, asks, and then the author of Job says in Job 2, verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, he didn't charge God with wrong. This is shocking, isn't it? The good and the evil are all from the same source, Job says. In fact, so shocking is this statement that the narrator of Job has to let us know that Job didn't sin by saying it. It's true, he says. Dark and bitter providences are from ultimately the hand of God. Charles Spurgeon said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup, he says, was never filled by his own hand. That my trials were never measured by, out by him or sent to me by his arrangement according to their weight and quantity. Now, why would he say that? Why? Because, friends, the alternative would be absolutely frightening. Because here's the alternative. We, we either have a God who is overall and whom, one whom we can direct all of our cries and our laments to in our suffering, even though we can't understand his, his ways and his sovereign will. Or we have no God at all. It's all meaningless suffering. Or worse still, we have a God who is too weak. He can't even seem to keep these things from happening to us. Or we have a God who is simply cruel. And so... We must see that even the dark, hard, bitter providences are from the hand of the Lord. Which also means that we must also remember that God is ultimately good. He's ultimately good. That behind those frowning providence lies his smiling face. We must be able to trust that he is working for our good. We must believe that his affliction is an expression of his good and loving and kind purposes in our lives. And we see here, don't we, that in the life of Naomi and Ruth, that behind all of these bitter providences, he is ultimately working out his good and saving purposes. Purposes that they cannot even see. He is working for their good. The book of Ruth is Romans 8.28 in narrative form. That God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is providentially working for their good and he's doing the same in your life, Christian, as well. And this is where Naomi goes wrong, isn't it? This is where she goes wrong in her theology because she believes that God is against her. She's somehow acting like Job's friends to herself. God is against me. He's not for me, he's against me. The hand of the Lord is against me. Oh, he's for her. He's for her, even in these dark, bitter providences. But second, finally, 
We cannot allow our suffering to make us bitter. That's the second application. We cannot allow our suffering to make us bitter. Have you noticed how oftentimes the older a person gets, the more bitter they become? I mean, have you ever met elderly folks who, who are just hard and bitter? Why is that? Well, I think one reason is perhaps because they, they've lived long enough to suffer a lot. Right? I mean, you will suffer in this life, and, and the longer you live, the more you'll suffer. Right? And suffering and hardships and trials, dark providences, they, they, they can make you better or they can make you bitter. Can't they? And listen, this isn't just true of elderly people. This is true of young people and middle-aged people, all people. So how do we suffer then in such a way that we don't become bitter? That we don't become like Naomi here? How how do we exemplify the, the faith and the trust of Ruth here? Here's how. We refuse to allow our suffering to blind us to God's kindness in our lives. We refuse to allow the dark providences that God brings into our lives to blind us to his kindness towards us, his mercy towards us, even in the things we can and cannot see. Do you ever recount God's kindness in your life? Because bitterness can blind you, friend. It blinds you to his goodness. It robs you from seeing his kindness and his mercy toward you. That God has been so gracious to us in ways that we don't deserve. And so, listen, we must must be diligent. We must be intentional, Christians, to observe the different kindnesses of God towards us in our lives. Or we will become bitter. So, are you, listen, Practically, are you taking note each and every day in your life of the kindnesses of God toward you? I I once heard a a pastor say one time how taking out the garbage each week is an evidence of God's kindness to us. (laughs) Think about that. How so? Because it means there's no famine. It means there's abundance, right? It's an evidence of God's kindness and mercy to us. The the book of Ruth should help us transform the way we even take out the trash. So take note. Take note of God's kindness and goodness toward you in the form of your health and your home and your family and your spouse and your children and your church and the warm bed that you sleep in and the shirt on your back and the food that you eat and the sunrise and the springtime and the breath in your lungs. The fact that he didn't incinerate you yesterday. Little evidences of his mercy and kindness in your life every day. And truly, the most important way we remember his kindness, his goodness, his mercy towards us is by remembering the cross, don't we? Because it was there that Christ endured the darkest evil for us, bearing our sin in our place. It was there that God poured out his kindness on us as he poured out his wrath on his son, reserved for me. It was there where the darkest providence in history 
happened, orchestrated by God himself, even at the hands of lawless men, and it was filled with purpose, it was filled with meaning, it was filled with design for our good and for his glory. Look to the cross to see God's kindness in your life. And we see a glimmer of that hope in verse 22. Notice, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Not only will they meet Boaz in this barley field, Ruth and Naomi's kinsman redeemer, but as one pastor said, in those very same fields of Bethlehem, hundreds of years later, a greater hope would come as the shepherds would announce the coming of the redeemer. And if only Naomi knew the purposes of God in her darkest moments that he was working all of this and that he had chosen this unclean, pagan, Moabite woman to bring forth the Savior of the world. That behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. We thank you for your love and your mercy. Mercy that we do not deserve. Mercy that we see displayed at the cross where the Son of God bore our sins so that we might be reconciled to you so that in return, all we now would receive would be grace and mercy and love and kindness from your hand. Oh, Lord, help us to see that the frowning providences in our life are your smile upon us as you are working all of these things according to your sovereign purposes for our good and for your glory. May we turn to you in lament oftentimes, but in worship and praise that you are the sovereign, wise, good holy God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.